Hello and welcome to the Independent Research Forum podcast. The IRF represents the cream of independent research providers to investors. I'm John Paul Smith and I'm in conversation today with David Roach, founder and CEO of Independent Strategy. David founded Independent Strategy in 1994 along with three colleagues, all of whom are still partners in the firm. Among the many clients are major hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, private equity groups, family offices, pension and mutual fund groups. Now, I'm going to try not to be too sycophantic, but David's always been a professional role model for me, certainly in the 1990s when I was an investment manager and was actually indirectly responsible for me focusing full time on Russia and Eastern Europe in 1995. So I'd just like to start, David, by asking you um, about your background and your approach to the linkages between geopolitics and markets, because I recall you writing about the pipelines across the Ukraine as early as, what, 1990, 1991, when the Soviet Union was starting to break up. So you've, you've been studying this region, this part of the world, and the impact on financial markets for a very long time indeed. Uh, of course, yes, but that's um, kind of because I used to go there a lot when I was... Um, uh, younger, probably more left-wing, and more approved of. Um, <clears throat> so things like cables, pipelines, uh, were a different angle on what could happen when the Soviet Union fell to bits. Uh, now, of course, it took a little while to happen, but now we're there. Uh, and the question really is, uh, are these things now more relevant than they were at that time when they turned out to be intellectually interesting? But certainly didn't make you any money. No, no, that that's that that that's uh, that that's for sure. Um, but now, obviously, it's right at the forefront of investors' attention. Um, do you want to briefly go through some of the potential scenarios, and then maybe we can look at possibly why the markets may be underestimating, if if you think that's the case, uh, the impact on, um, for example, European economies and uh, European financial markets. Sure. Well, let's begin with scenarios. I think, in my mind, one has to start by saying, what does Putin actually stand for? And he is not somebody who seeks really to get votes uh, by uh, being particularly brilliant about the economy. He has the ideology made up of uh, his political concepts, which entails putting the US back in its box as a regional power, North and South America, but virtually out of Europe, or at least back to the 1997 type of NATO frontiers. So he wants to leave the former Eastern European countries uh, really naked. And he wants to establish a zone of influence which will go from Minsk uh, to beyond the, uh, the Transcaucasian area, which will be Russia's stomping ground. Now, in the middle of this is the idea that only big countries are sovereign. Russia is big, so it's sovereign. It may be tiny economically, which is true, but it's big in geographical terms. So it's sovereign. The US is sovereign. China is sovereign. And India is sovereign. But places like Belarus, Belgium, Ireland, 
and pretty well the whole of Europe doesn't really merit being called sovereign. So it's his really to negotiate where all these little countries, which are not so little, uh, end up. Uh, so that's what he is thinking about. And he believes that uh, the moment is now because the U.S. is clearly a dying democracy. It can't even agree with itself how to uh, deal with populists or the Trump legacy. And Trump is as equal, or a little Trump, whatever you may define that as, is, as e is equally likely to get into power when Biden falters his way out of power as not. And he believes that Europe has really not got a voice at the table. It hasn't got an army. It hasn't got a united will. And it's also a declining and decadent democracy. So he believes his hour has come. That's essential to understanding what, um, what's going on, because you have to understand what Putin is. And Putin is, in a sense like Shir, an ideologue whose Ideology is not made up of kind of a traditional Marxist-Leninist uh, kind of coherent political, social, uh, and economic ideology. It's made up of bits and pieces of his own interpretation of history. And, and therefore, people tend to say, oh, well, you know, in the end, he'll be pragmatic. But actually, neither she, who puts the supremacy of the Communist Party ahead of the econ any economics, or Putin, who puts re-establishing the power of the Soviet Union without a Soviet system, uh, neither of them are the less ideological because there isn't a coherent economic framework which would match that ideology as there used to be in either liberal market um, uh, kind of economics or indeed in, in, in Marxist-Leninist economics. But that's what he's all about. And once you get that, then you have an idea of perhaps what he's going to do. And as far as I can see, he has left himself no room to climb down. I mean, the Americans have been uh, really making a huge effort to give him every excuse to de-escalate. And he has really spurned all of that. So he can't go home with nothing. Therefore, the scenarios are, number one, he takes another chunk out of uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, which I think it will not be seen as a victory by anybody in Russia, because essentially, you know, that side of Ukraine is Russian falling to bits anyway. Uh, or he completely smashes the Ukraine, as the whole infrastructure of Ukraine as an independent state, its utilities, its various key ministries, its army, and he comes down into Kiev from the Belarusian border, probably, of, you know, 60 kilometers away, and, and carries out immense destruction and then goes home. I don't think the third scenario, which is he takes to Ukraine and he then stays and rules it, is likely. I think a, a smash and grab scenario is much more likely because staying and ruling it will expose him to the one thing that Ukrainians in history have proven which is when it comes to guerrilla warfare, well, when it comes to les maquisards, they know how to do it. And it would be another Afghanistan for Russia. So I think that's not going to happen. So you have three scenarios. Number one, he takes what's being offered, which is kind of 
nice, face-saving, dignified negotiations and new ways of communicating with the West, but none of his key demands. Uh, two is that he takes a chunk out of Ukraine, which destabilizes it, but is really nothing new. Or the third is he smashes it, smash and grab. And I would have thought that this uh, third scenario is the most likely. Of course, it's not going to happen during the Beijing Olympics, but uh, there is no sign that the arms build up on Ukrainian borders is declining. So that's, that's I think, uh, the, the key things are, one, work out in, in your mind what Putin actually is uh, as a figure, as a psychology. And second is look at the scenarios and see what is he likely to take given who, what he's like, what, he, what he's made up of. And so that's where I come out. I'd like to come back to Putin's motivation um, in, in a minute. But just um, coming around to the market's reaction, um, if, if you're correct, and I, I guess a smash and grab would be reasonably in line with what happened in Georgia in 2008, right? Would that be a valid analogy, do you think, David? Uh, it would be, uh, though Georgia really remains occupied uh, against its will. Uh, and I'm sure Eastern Ukraine will and Crimea will. Uh, and he won't go home with, without territory. But uh, the real thing is that uh, the degree of destruction will be much, much greater because he wants to make sure. That, and after all, he has written a 5,000-word treatise on the unity of the Ukrainian and Russian people, which actually is 5,000 words and why the Ukrainian people don't exist. So he, he, he actually has to, um, to implement this. And I would have thought that that is different from Georgia. I mean, Georgia is still there. In a sense, uh, Ukraine will be, uh, I think he could easily devastate it. But that, that would incur horrific loss of life particularly amongst the Ukrainian population, but also amongst some of the Russian forces as well. Um, and so I guess, is, is that likely to, to sort of play well at home? I mean, we know... I think, look, if you, t if you take a scenario whereby he moves across Ukraine to the, let's say, the Dnieper River uh, from uh, eastern Ukraine, so he basically chops off half of it and fights his way over to there and that's occupied, I think that would entail horrific uh, loss of life. I think if you take a scenario where he just smashes all the infrastructure of a national state in Ukraine, or most of it, a lot of it, this can be carried out with quite minimal, not minimal, but not the same horrific loss of life, either to local Ukrainians or to the Russians. It can be carried out by a movement, a military movement from a much shorter distance from Belarusia. It can be carried out by air. It can be carried out by mammoth cyber attacks. All the ways, I think we have to move on from the kind of black and white movies in our heads, which is kind of the longest day, the troops yes. on the beaches. That's not how they're going to fight this. I don't think so. That would be too politically costly. So, so when the markets are looking at this sort of scenario, that, do you think that's why they are, I mean, I hesitate to use the phrase relatively relaxed, but if you recall, the build-up to the Iraq war or the second war where the, uh, the invasion of Iraq by the Americans, there was a sort of sense of massive apprehension in the air. And, and perhaps longer term, that might have been justified because it did have 
you know, very important political consequences and the delegitimization, if you like, of a lot of uh, US um, and indeed U- UK power and their, their position in the world. But on a short term basis, the markets were almost certainly too neurotic about it. And in fact, you know, when the actual invasion happened, the markets then went up. It seems to me at the moment we're almost seeing the, the opposite impact, that, that there's a, a shadow over markets. But in practical terms, everybody's so busy watching the Fed that t- leaving gas and oil aside, and we'll come back to that in a minute, um, the investors seem to be, as I said, relatively as relaxed as they could be. And perhaps that's because they're discounting the scenario you just outlined. It's hard to say. I mean, if I look at my own investors, most of them um, treat it as background noise. But, of course, that would be right for most geopolitical events. And I don't only deal with geopolitical events. After all, like everybody else, I have to focus more on the ECB and the Fed and currency markets and interest rates and equity market discounts and all the rest. But I think it's the wrong reaction. There's a huge difference between the average geopolitical event and something really bad happening about Russia. Uh, I think Putin underestimates it because the Americans have really got a coherent, unified strategy to uh, impose horrific sanctions on Russia if this happens. And I think the Europeans are underestimating it because they seem to think that Qatar can replace uh, uh, Russian gas and all the other things that uh, flow from Russia to Europe, which if Russia is cut off, even 40% cut off would produce an instantaneous recession in Europe, which is in nobody's price. And I don't think that all the good intentions of the Americans to make sanctions uh, less painful to Europe, which is really the the area in the crosshairs. So there would be global implications, of course, if it's if energy prices react to really big sanctions on Russia. And um, I don't think that uh, this really is something which Putin has come to terms with because he's not an economic animal. And I don't think it's something which the markets have come to terms with because they have become acclimatized to simply watching central banks in order to get more money to invest in, uh, in financial assets. And they think that any geopolitical event from Zimbabwe to Moscow uh, has little or no impact on economies. Russia is different. It's, um, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, but I mean, it's puzzling, isn't it? Because the gas price in Europe has already gone up four and a half times. And obviously the impact on consumers is deferred because partly because the European governments have already started to subsidise energy, which will sort of obviate some of the demand destruction, which in time might help to reduce the high prices. But also because obviously um, there's price caps and hedging strategies from the big energy firms as well. So we haven't actually seen anything like the impact on consumers that's going to take place from the rise in the gas price to even to the level it is now. And and I'm just puzzled as to why, as I said, the markets do not seem to be particularly concerned about that. And 
you know, maybe, and I don't know, you talk to far more investors than I do, David, but these sort of slightly parochial, parochial view that um, US investors always, always seem to have. So they seem to be ignoring what's happening in China and the slowdown there. And they seem to be ignoring the impact of high gas prices on, um, on Europe and on the European economies and, and consumption. So... You know, maybe. Well, let me run through that for a second. First of all, um, let's work out how important Russia is. It's 47% at the moment of European gas imports. That cannot be made up by LNG for several reasons. Number one, the ships are full. Number two, the plants which actually make LNG shippable call them giant refrigeration and condensation plants, uh, they're full. Number three is that any replacement of Russian gas through LNG entails a re-engineering of the gas pipelines in Europe because actually they are made to flow from east to west and not from west to east, which is not a question of geographical network of gas lines. It's the nature of the gas pipeline itself. So they, the, the markets had the idea that uh, when uh, uh, the uh, leader of Qatar goes to see Biden this week, which of course is not a coincidence, there will be much blessings of uh, Qatar's commitment to sell increased uh, LNG, which we would have to take away from Asian uh, uh, co- contracted clients. But I mean, that is not just not, that is a three to five year process. So gas, one, two, 47% of our coal imports in Europe come from Russia. Now that is one of Merkel's great uh, uh, foresightless gifts to Europe. Because if you remember the nuclear disaster in Japan, uh, Fukushima, uh, she then thought, well, this is a good opportunity to zap the green vote. I'm going to close down German nuclear power stations, which is ongoing, as is the closure of Belgian nuclear power stations. Well, what did they, where did they get their electricity from? And the answer was they bought French nuclear power. And then they bought Russian coal. And they became, uh, Germany became the highest coal carbon imprint in Europe. Absolutely. So that was brilliant. But I mean, what are you going to do if the coal can't be paid for in dollars? Uh, are you going to close down electricity in Germany and turn off the lights? So that's very serious. 25% uh, of oil imports in Europe come from Russia. What do you do about that? Russia is the largest grain exporter in the world. Its grains, uh, take wheat, for example, are 80% of the sum of all the exports from the United States and Canada. It's a mammoth food supplier, uh, and that will go. And in addition, just as a footnote, Europe uh, imports over $30 billion worth of metals from the Soviet Union, from Russia. Sorry, Soviet Union is a bit of a slip, but it's uh, kind of similar in a way. So to pretend that you can actually have painless sanctions is rubbish. What the markets are accustomed to thinking is that no geopolitical event leads to sanctions which inflict pain. That's where they're wrong. If there is 
And I'm not looking to kind of say a minor little invasion like uh, Joe Biden stumbled into in his famous, uh, of many famous, awful press conferences. I'm looking to say uh, Russia really does believe in the 5,000 word essay, uh, which is one of the most boring reads uh, you've ever made of, of Putin's uh, thesis, which says Ukraine doesn't exist. If he puts that into practice, as I think his psychological makeup make, m- makes likely, then these economic birds are flying home to roost and there are no painless sanctions and no quick fixes. That's where markets are wrong. I mean, that's a really important conclusion. It's really important that he gets out there and, and sort of investors are aware of this possibility. I mean, there is a debate at the moment in the financial press, obviously a lively debate about the extent of sanctions. And clearly one of the key ones is the potential exclusion of Russia from the SWIFT system. Now, as far as I'm aware, that would make it difficult, if not impossible, for them, for the Europeans to pay for energy supplies. And, and, and I mean, the, the conventional wisdom at the moment out there is that almost regardless of what happens in the Ukraine, the, the, you know, the sanctions will not go that far. In other words, that they won't do to Russia what they've sort of done to I- Iran, if, if, if you like, and, and sort of cut it off because the consequences, as you've outlined, are simply too severe. But from what you're saying, you think actually there will be a willingness in America to push this and, and impose this on the Europeans as far as they possibly can. Uh, I would agree with what you said. I think there is a much greater degree of consensus, even with the traffic light coalition in Germany, which is uh, about as limp as an organ we won't describe uh, concerning uh-huh. Russia. Um, that if uh, Putin does act on uh, Ukraine, uh, does invade Ukraine in any form or kind or attacks it, then uh, the, the Germans, who, who, are, who are, instead of being the European leaders, they are now the weakest link in the chain, yeah. uh, they are now prepared to act. So I think the first thing I would say in, in adding to your columns is that people are underestimating the willingness and the cohesion of what the US has built up in order to confront Russia. The second thing is, I think Putin would have said exactly what you just said. They won't dare. And therefore, he believes he has a license to deliver what in his ideology is the proof that he is going to take the steps to actually reestablish Russia uh, as, a, as a world power equivalent uh, to the Soviet Union without the, uh, the kind of Soviet uh, disastrous uh, just having a kleptocratic economy is different to having a Soviet system. Uh, so I think he actually is as died in the world ideologically in uh, intent upon acting upon reestablishing Russia in its former might uh, as Xi is intent on transforming and uh, the Chinese economy so that instead of rogue capitalism undermining the Communist Party, the Communist Party 
remains as the dominant economic factor. I think in both cases, which you uh, uh, cited at the beginning of our talk, chat, um, I think the market underestimates uh, the reach and potential of this. They're just not accustomed to it. So, okay. So, I mean, that that's a very profound and serious conclusion. Can I just be devil's advocate for a minute? Because you've talked about pragmatism and you've just mentioned the word kleptocracy as well. And I was once told by a former foreign minister of a European country that the only way you could understand Russia and the current leadership was by watching The Sopranos, right? Just get a box set of The Sopranos and, and watch it because there was a clear financial motive. We know what the links are the linkages, economic linkages, um, uh, and, and we've seen the Navalny revelations and the various other things that have, have, have come out of Russia. If we look at Gazprom's third quarter results, we can see uh, a massive increase in income with the gas price at current levels, with the possibility of further rises in the oil price. You've mentioned grain. I'm assuming that they can continue to receive payment for these commodities in a way, by ratcheting up the tension, and here's the thing I'm not sure about, I'm not sure to what extent you can separate what's happening with Nord Stream and the pipeline across the Ukraine, the existing pipeline across the Ukraine and Nord Stream 2, from what is happening on a military front as well. And to what extent there's actually an economic and financial motivation underlying what Russia is doing. I mean, clearly the two go together. But at what point do they, if you like, sort of cash in their gains? I mean, this is like a windfall profit for Russia, PLC, not not PLC. Um, I think it's JSC, isn't it? Um, that, uh, that, of course, people look at share prices and they look at the significance of share prices for Russia. But, of course, that's not what's significant. What's significant for the people that run Russia is cash flow because we know what happens to, to, to the appropriation of some of those cash flows. And there'll be a lot of people becoming even wealthier than they are at the moment from, from what's going on. And I just wonder to what extent that imposes a sort of pragmat or, 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 or hints at a sort of pragmatism underlying this, or whether it is more, more purely ideologically as you, ideological as you suggest. Well, I think it's a very good point. If I were to go back three years in China, we could have made the same argument. There was wholesale cash flow from uh, these major corporations into individuals in the Communist Party. But there was a head of the whole apparatus. President Xi uh, was actually not in their camp. He was in the camp of purifying the Communist Party and enforcing his ideology uh, as a supreme uh, political power within China, and of course, beyond. Okay, I would say Putin is the same, not in terms of his intelligence, and not in terms of the, the different fragments or pieces of the jigsaw puzzle which make up his ideology. But people think that uh, Putin is in power in order for the, um, the various seniors, senior members of the kleptocracy to make money out of uh, uh, commodities, which is what they export, basically. Uh, and the answer is, I don't think so. I think that's where we're making a mistake. We think that is one unified hegemonic uh, entity. 
with Putin sitting on top of uh, you know the, these mammoth cash flows? I don't think so. I think Putin is an ideologue, just like Xi is an ideologue. And I think actually, they, they intellectually, that's why they marry so well, uh, why they match and support each other so well. They both have this theory of Western democracy being decadent and of the need to exert a supreme political power over economics. So in a sense, what I'm saying is I don't agree. Um, that doesn't mean I'm right. But my... Uh, interpretation of what uh, Putin is made up of is far more psychologically similar to Xi in terms of putting political power, the consolidation of the Russian state as a political entity and as a global uh, power way ahead of the interests of the cash flows, which are undoubtedly rising because the price of the commodities have been rising because of the crisis. I don't think that's a cause and effect. I think that's an accident. But for Putin, it is not something which sets his policy. What sets his policy, what he writes and what he says. Yes, and he's been prepared to ruthlessly sacrifice the living standards of the Russian population in return for creating a fortress economy with, what, $600 billion worth of FX reserves and a sort of what I would term an autarkic governance regime, which is the way a lot of the world has been moving. They've moved from this idea of liberal convergence through to uh, more state-directed, then authoritarian. And now if we look at China and Russia, we're moving almost towards autarkic regimes. Although, interestingly, in the case of China, foreign direct investment and portfolio investment is still continuing, despite the fact that uh, it's inimical in some ways to the interests of, of, of the West, if I could put it in those very, very crude terms. I mean, if you look at that, David, just just step back a little bit, in context, and this sounds a very naive question, what is the future for emerging markets when you have this sort of trend going on, this Cold War II or whatever you would like to uh, call it? Can, can we even talk about emerging markets as a discrete asset class? Well, I would say there's a price for everything, of course, and I'm not saying that there aren't emerging markets which are cheap and so on and so forth. But what I would say is that emerging markets essentially depend on the growth of international trade. There are very few emerging markets out there which can uh, are self-driving in the sense that China is self-driving because of the immensity of its domestic market. So China can implement common prosperity basically by switching to a consumer service-based the economy now it may not be the sort of economy you want to live in, or it may not be the sort of economy that uh, we saw we historically has developed in the United States. But China has got a critical mass, which, despite the numbers of people, places like Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Laos, and so on and so on, do not have. So even taking those economies, the Asian ones, without the motor of uh, international trade, which is, we're talking about the first victim of a Cold War, they really don't have a great economic message. Then we can switch. We can have a little look at Latin America. Now, Latin America, uh, you know, they tried everything they could from the Chicago School of Economics, and it would now appear that the, the populations don't like it very much. It takes a little while. But they are busy designing themselves economic and political systems, which will result in another lost decade 
Sure, they can produce commodities and food, and uh, Brazil can chop down the rest of its rainforests and um, produce yet more food for, 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 for cattle so that people can eat bigger and bigger steaks or more people can eat smaller steaks, whatever way you want to put it. Yes. But the reality is they, there's no, the economic message in Latin America is disastrous. And then, of course, we can go back to the points you made about the Iraq war, and we can go back and we can have a look at Turkey. Well, I mean, I'm not in a mad rush to plow my, my few remaining dollars into those places either. We've talked about the Asian factory economies. Uh, uh, we've talked about Latin America. Um, the Asians require growth in world trade uh, in order to grow because that's what they have always done. And they don't have the critical mass of China to develop their own domestic markets. Latin America is busy uh, throwing away uh, liberal market economics uh, and developing a socio-political economic system, which looks to me like being about to end up in another lost decade uh, of economic development. And then I said we can turn and look at what you were talking about, which is yep. the uh, inheritance from the Iraq war, which um, hardly makes that area of the world very attractive for investment, and even the fringes of it like Turkey, which was once a serious candidate to get into the EU and will now never get in, uh, not, not in our living days anyway, uh, and is run by what would appear to be a completely madman. Do you want to put your money in there? No, thanks. I think the arguments for emerging markets, as was the case last year, is, is pretty poor. Pretty poor. I, I agree. I agree. Should we should we should we wrap up by just going through then some of the uh, potential trades and implications arising out of uh, out of all of this? Um, so I don't want to put words into your mouth, but but maybe we start with the bond markets and then just move through equities, currencies, any opportunities that you think arise on the on the long side, which uh, from from the sound of it is is is, is quite a tough ask, I think. Well, let us look first of all at uh, bond markets. And uh, there are two things I'd like to say about that. Number one is the supply side disruptions, which were uh, as transitory as inflation a few months ago, uh, are obviously uh, not uh, the result of momentary uh, misallocation between uh, supply and demand. They're obviously much more profound. They affect a vast range of industries. They're not going to go away. So even looking at standard economics, uh, the disruptions which uh, have the effect of boosting demand for certain goods, reducing demand for others, but they have one commonality, which is that it increases costs and therefore inflation or reduces profits. That is there. You can then look at Russia and say, well, I don't care about um, geopolitics. But if anything happens in Russia, you then have a mammoth supply-side disruption. So to invest in bond markets uh, at, uh, with that scenario, you would have to make the assumption that it all results in a global uh, recession or depression, which ultimately means that everything is resolved and there is no inflation because the global economies are so awful. That's the first thing. So uh, <clears throat> I can't really see any position in bonds except being short. 
And that, sorry, sorry, David, sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, but is that that recession, surely, if, if you're right about what might happen in, in Russia, and also given the Chinese economy is in this sort of transition from investment-led growth to domestic growth and, and seems to be slowing all the time with all the attendant risks, is, is that global recession not a real possibility coming from outside the US? Well, it, it certainly is a possibility if what I think is quite over 50% uh, likely to happen in uh, Ukraine actually happens. Then the recession would start in uh, Europe before the old pandemic uh, recession was really over. So you would have one piled on another, and that would be a surprise. But of course, because of the implications of higher prices for oil, gas globally, even though gas is a much less interlinked global market than oil, uh, no economy would be uh, immune. The U.S. would do better because it produces a, a lot of its own oil, but that does not mean it would not have uh, global implications. I don't think anyone would escape. Yeah, yeah. So in that case, you know, I, of course, you'd have this. You'd, you'd almost have a sort of, I suppose, stagflationary type scenario, right, where you have low growth and you have sort of supply-led inflation, but it's not the sort of inflation you could cure through high interest rates. So is, is it not a possibility in that scenario you'd actually see bond yields or probability? You'd actually no, I, 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 that's possible. That, and that's a good question. I think you'd steer, see a mammoth steepening of the yield curves because the central banks would ride to the rescue, as in the U.S. cavalry. Yeah. But the bond markets would be scared out of their lives by what they would see as, at least initially, a highly stagflationary environment with very few tools to combat it. Yeah, none. Really, um, I, I wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't have thought. Okay, so that that's 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 the uh, those the bomb. And then so for so for equities, I guess just uh, unremittingly negative implications in that case. Well, of course, people will say that um, corporations can game this sort of a market. Inflation has to come from someplace. And certain corporations, many, will be able to use inflation to increase prices. And for a time, that inflation might, that inflation in output prices might offset the decrease in profits from the increase uh, and rising input prices. But in the end, the idea that equities are a hedge in this sort of environment would need you to think that long-term interest rates would not rise. And this would, of course, weigh on price earnings multiples. And you need to think that output prices can consistently increase faster than input prices. And actually, what I'm describing in terms of the geopolitical action being of itself a supply-side shock would indicate the opposite. So it would not be a good market for equities either. In fact, it would be a market where holding the right cash or hedge against inflation would be good. So in terms of a hedge against inflation, I mean, are there any particular currencies? Would it, would it be gold or, or, or even crypto? I mean, which, where, where, would you, where would you hide or where might you hide? Well, I don't I, look. I think that what I would do in this scenario is, and certainly initially, to hold U.S. dollars because that's what the world is going to do. That's what the euro is telling you. It's what the yen is telling you. So I don't think we need to over intellectualize that case. 
would it last forever? Because I don't think Biden is really somebody who um, is economically gifted enough to be in charge of a sweet shop. So would it last forever? No. But it'll last for as long as you and I need to worry about it. That's number one. Number two is, of course, we can make money out of being short things. There are piles of things in this environment which I would be short. Um, like, for example, um, overvalued uh, IT stocks, overvalued electric vehicle producers. Uh, and you can look around from, uh, and you can see the whole of the metaverse kind of uh, ramp uh, or hype. That would be an immediate victim to this sort of scenario because how do you discount uh, an almost non-existent concepts future non-existent profits by an interest rate which has just gone up by 500 basis points? And the answer is you can't. So those sort of things would suffer. Now, what would do well? Grain, energy, certain metals, particularly the strategic sort of metals, because there would still be uh, a great need to replace hydrocarbons. So you would still be looking at the strategic metals involved in renewable energy because that's the only way that really they can they can they can cope with energy shortages such as we're describing. So those sort of things would go up. Europe is uh, really in the crosshairs of this, and practically every single asset is a short that you can see. And Japan, I suppose, because they would bring all their assets home and clutch them to their their, their bosom would continue to flood along on the currents of the world, but would not be a primary victim of this. Now, the big question mark, I think, geopolitically, which would have a huge influence on markets, which we have not discussed, is what would Xi Jinping do about Taiwan if uh, the American response uh, to a uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is only part of a much bigger agenda of actually um, making, weakening the, the West in a dramatic fashion. How would he react if the American-European reaction was soft? And how would he react if it was really hard? But what we have to understand is that the Chinese markets are out there on the edge of this, in many ways are much more important, in many ways, not in the commodity terms, but in terms of global equity and bond markets, but certainly global equity markets are more important and in terms of trade flows. So you can make a scenario that actually Putin could be emboldened by any weakness shown on the issue of a Russian intervention in Ukraine. And she could be cowed by a, a, a hard reaction to Russian actions in Ukraine. But what you have to uh, pay attention to or admit is that the issue of China and Taiwan is not independent of the issue of Russia and Ukraine. Both have agendas to weaken the West and replace it in a much more important uh, fashion though those targets are like Ukraine and like Taiwan, they're very important and in human terms, huge. But the agenda are, is linked. 
the response to Ukraine will condition what Xi does and what China does about the South China Sea and Taiwan. And that is perhaps a, a, a bigger factor in global markets going out than anything we've mentioned today. Yes. So you think, in other words, that the, um, that the harder the US and the West's response to uh, any incursion into the Ukraine, the more likely it is that she will tactically step back a little bit. Is that, is that correct? Am I reading that correctly? Yes. yes. Okay. And then yes. that's... And vice versa. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really important um, conclusion. And also, obviously, there's a huge amount of money from um, Western institutions in China, particularly given the increase in China's representation in all the various global indices, actually at probably precisely the wrong time as well, as is always the case, or invariably the case with indexation. So, you know, there's, a, there's also almost a sort of potential hostage situation, if you like, with investors Western investors who are in China and how that resolves itself over the medium and long term, I have absolutely no idea at all, because as far as I'm aware, the money is still pouring in, despite the fact that at a geopolitical level, you know, obviously the antipathy between China, Russia and the West has, has grown enormously over the past few years. So it's, it's a puzzle to me, frankly. Well, I can see a few answers to that puzzle, though it's probably um, an aside to the to the major thrust of what we're talking about. One is German car producers can't produce cars in Germany profitably anymore, but they do want to produce for the Chinese market, so where do they go? The second is that people like uh, the owners of Tesla, the owner of Tesla, um, wants to produce cars in China because it's a vast market, even though he is probably number four producer at the moment. But the uh, morals or ethics uh, of doing so are not of concern. So that's why money goes in. Yes. It is basically um, uh, an economic necessity or it is greed. And that will go on until something happens which makes it impossible for that to go on. Yes, such as the uh, potential events you're describing around around Taiwan. So, uh, yeah, even even more at even more at stake as we go forward. Well, look, David, and unless there's anything you want to add to that, that's uh... no. I didn't address one thing you said, and I don't know if you want to do it or not. I don't think um, I'm not against crypto assets. I think they represent a. a a network which will grow and gain credibility over time, but they don't give diversification effects in the short term. They go up and down with risk appetite and swing more widely. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, they were supposed to be the alternative gold. Well, they don't behave like gold at all. Um, it isn't that gold goes down and they go up. They actually are a function of uh, risk appetite. Gold, I think, could come back because, after all, Russia is a huge producer of gold. Now, if that cannot be sold uh, except through either the central bank hoarding it or selling it in, uh, through CNY and back into U.S. dollars, uh, which would apply to all of their commodities, that uh, of itself would be a huge economic efficiency, inefficiency and cost. But it could lead certainly to people reassessing gold if Russia was no longer seen as a legitimate supplier to uh, uh, to uh, Western 
investors. That could influence the price of gold. So in a sense, gold could be a hedge. I quite like that idea because at the moment as well, gold seems to have a beta of, a beta of roughly zero. I mean, it goes up a little bit over 1800, it comes down and, uh, you know, there, there are quite a lot of the stale bulls, I think, have been flushed out of their gold positions as well because they've been waiting for so long for it to, uh, to go up. So maybe in the current environment, that's as good an investment as, as anything else out there. Well, look, thank you very much, David. You've been very, uh, very generous uh, with your time. For institutional investors out there, um, if you would like to um, subscribe to David's product or to know more about it, please do get in touch with the Independent Research Forum. I think hopefully what we've shown you during this podcast is that he has a fairly unique take on, on the links between political geopolitics and other events and actually what's happening in the markets and making tangible recommendations and actionable recommendations, particularly for asset allocators. And of course, he's backed by a large and experienced um, team as well, most of whom have been there for, for 20, I think, is it 24 years, 28 years now, isn't it, David, I think, since you founded Independence? Yes. So, you know, it's it's a big team. And if I was still an investment manager, I would be beating a path to uh, to his door. So thank you very much indeed for listening. <laughs>